Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Book Dreams, a podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Yohalem. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we're exploring something that feels especially important these days. How do you have meaningful conversations with people you vehemently disagree with? I confess, I sometimes find this very hard to do, especially when the conversation is about something I care deeply about, like, oh, I don't know, say voting rights or abortion or stolen elections. I mean, very hard is putting it very mildly, Eve, especially when you add in the element of having these conversations with people you actually care about. I mean, I get so upset during conversations about politics with certain family members. I feel like my body is on the verge of explosion with like body parts <laughs> flying off and blood splashing all over walls. I mean, it is so... So, but how do you so really upsetting. feel, Julie? You know, it's just hell on earth, which is why we are so excited to learn about a new book by journalist Monica Guzman called I Never Thought of It That Way How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. The book is both a thoughtful analysis of why we're so polarized and a how-to guide to talking to people with whom you disagree in a way that feels productive, or at least in a way that doesn't feel destructive. Yeah, or at least in a way that doesn't leave you walking around feeling incredibly pissed off. Right, exactly. <laughs> that, I was going to say baby steps, but that also seems like a huge step. Anyway, uh, Monica knows from personal experience how hard these conversations can be. She's the liberal daughter of Mexican immigrants who voted twice for Donald Trump, and she's in a close, loving relationship with her parents. Monica developed her career as a journalist, and more recently, she's focused on helping people learn to be more curious and less combative, and to try to build trust rather than change minds. She's the director of digital and storytelling at Braver Angels, a nonprofit working to depolarize America, and host of the Crosscut interview series, Northwest Newsmakers. She was a 2019 fellow at the Henry M. Jackson Foundation, where she studied social and political division, and a 2016 fellow at the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University, where she studied how journalists can better meet the needs of a participatory public. Before committing to the project of helping people understand each other across the political divide, Monica co-founded the award-winning Seattle newsletter, The Evergrey. She was named one of the 50 most influential women in Seattle and served twice as a juror for the Pulitzer Prizes. I interviewed Monica on my own so we could try out what it was like to have the kind of open-ended, one-on-one communication that Monica describes. I started by asking her when and why she decided to be a journalist. She told me about an experience she had after her freshman year of college when she was interning at New Hampshire Public Radio. Take a listen. 
I ended up outside a movie theater that had been converted from an old church in a small town in New Hampshire. I was there to interview the owner of the independent movie theater. And I went into some kind of trance. And something like an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, I don't know, it had gotten dark. We were sitting on the steps outside the theater. I saw myself watching him. His expression was like out looking into the sky. All he was doing was reflecting on his own experiences, starting this theater, how much he cared about the community, why it was so beloved that a journalist, you know, paid attention to it. And I realized that that was like the happiest, most alive kind of experience for me to help someone else mine the richness of their own story. And from that moment, I said, I got to do this for the rest of my life. Do you have thoughts about what was it about helping someone to do that that entranced you? Part of it, honestly, is how much I disappeared. I know that sounds weird, but to recognize that I am now not in my own head, not in my own ego, but I am in a story, I am in an experience. And then this other person gets to go back over their own story and see it for the collection of delights that it truly is and the collections of discoveries. It was almost like plugging into like the vein of something. What I'm really fascinated by, well, one of the things I'm really fascinated by, this disappearance of the self. When I think about that in terms of this book that you've written about how to be in conversation, you talk a lot about how it needs to be reciprocal. So there needs to be mutual sharing. So how does the reciprocal part fit in? Conversation is always two dialogues. There's the dialogue you're having with the people you're conversing with, right? But then there's the dialogue you're having with yourself. Yeah. So even when the self disappears, your thoughts are in there churning, churning, churning. And depending on what you hear from the other person and what sparks and strikes, you're remembering all of your experiences and your stories. And you're deciding sometimes when one of them is like important enough to interrupt the other person and go, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It's this process where you're adding energy and momentum mm -hmm. and um, the best conversations, you know, they last long enough that both people can explore themselves and each other yeah. and discover something new when they blend the meaning that they both put in the middle of them in that space. One of the things I, I struggle with a lot um, is you've encountered someone who has very different beliefs about something that is deeply meaningful to both of you. Mm -hmm. How do you get into that conversation? I think this is one of the hardest things about this for everybody. We often want to come into a conversation with someone with whom we disagree, largely just hoping that they'll change. Mm -hmm. Because we love them, because we can't stand them, you know, for a bunch of reasons. They have to change for X, Y, or Z. Well, also because the issue is so important, right? Like, yes. you know, I'm very pro-abortion rights. I must change your point of view because this is essential to the well-being of the world, right. right? It's like, it's that big and important. Exactly. And, and in fact, yeah, that is the major reason people are, are coming into this conflict. So the hardest thing to do is to let go of that as the primary uh, reason for your engagement. But people always, you know, people say this all the time. It's like, well, I can't not want to persuade. And no, you can't. You can't not want to persuade. It is okay to want to persuade. 
that's fine. It's more about just understanding that if you come in with that too much on the forefront, you're actually not going to learn very much at all. Mm -hmm. The conversation will be too short. It will get too heated and burn something too quickly. And then you'll just kind of, it'll be done. So if you actually want to learn and explore, you can't have that at the front especially if you're really passionate about this issue because you're going to get too hot too fast, right? If you then add as a goal, no, I really do want to learn here. I really do want to understand, not just about this other person's view, but my own. Mm -hmm. And if that becomes a bigger goal, then you'll find ways to add endurance and resilience into your conversation so that it doesn't just flame out. And then you're going to go really surprising places where you might deepen and complicate your own understanding of the issue And that's happened to me countless times. It can be very frustrating because it's left me as a person who, you know, I'm with my friends and they go, ah, this has to be this. Well, that has to be that. And I'm the one going, I don't know, guys, I think it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And so that can be lonely sometimes um, in a polarized world, but I don't care. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, um, You said something, well, you said a lot of things in your book that are really interesting, but among them is this quotation that I want to read. You say, what happens in the world matters, but our interpretation of what happens in the world matters more. That doesn't mean we should pay any less attention to facts. It means we should pay more attention to perspectives. So I'm not sure I totally understand what you mean by this. Can you explain it to me? Yeah. So because I'm a journalist... Looming large in my world is the battle against misinformation, the confoundedness about how is it that truth is not surviving here? How is it that we don't have shared reality? Mm -hmm. Journalism is built from the ground up, you know, as a craft of truth telling and of truth finding and of truth seeking and of facts and of reporting the facts and I spent, you know, so much of my early career <laughs> staying up late at night, terrified that I got something wrong in the next day's story. Mm-hmm. Terrified. I mean, I can't tell you, really couldn't sleep that I would harm someone by getting a, a piece of their story wrong. So facts matter, you know, and there's a lot of lies and terrible things going on around us right now. But at the same time, I am so frustrated. I'm so frustrated by the way that I see so much of society responding to the brokenness so much as a question of correcting facts. Hmm. I've thought about this a lot and I'm continuing to think about it. One of the frameworks I think I've come down on is that there is truth telling, which is supremely important. And there is trust building, which is also supremely important. And what I've realized is Many times I've had to have conversations with people who do not share my facts at all. And these being facts that seem uncontestable to me, but that in order to still understand them, I have to put more focus on trust building than on truth seeking. Mm -hmm. And so I am seeking the truth of their perspective. That's how it's still truth seeking but I'm doing it by building trust, which means if they tell me insistently something that I really believe to be wrong, I have a choice. I can say you're wrong and then let the conversation flame out. Or I can say, I want to hear more about why you see it that way. And then I'm learning something different. 
Can you give an example of a conversation like that that you've had where you've spoken to someone and you absolutely disagree with their facts, but instead of just telling them they're wrong, you go deeper with them? Yeah, um, I can think of a conversation about the 2020 election with someone who really sure that it was just a fraud top down. The presumption with conversations like this is that the other person has no facts and no research and no information, but just the opposite is true in, in one respect. This person, this man, had nothing but links, had nothing but articles. So it's sort of this counterintuitive thing that sometimes the people who hold the most deviant minority opinion are the ones who have done the most research. Mm -hmm. And I put research in air quotes. Yeah. Because we have a very loud and expressive society out there and a lot of people are writing a lot of things. Right. So for me, it was that conversation was not about but that's wrong. But that's wrong. Let me send you the New York Times article and the Associated Press article and the so-and-so, right? Because then we would just be in a in a showdown of articles that leads nowhere. So instead, I just got really curious about where is this passion for him? Clearly, there's just a strong belief that something went wrong. And so I want to get into that. I don't want to argue about what's in the articles at all. I want to get to why is it that you ended up being someone who believes the election is wrong, but I didn't. What is it about you? That's what the conversation was about. So if the goal of these conversations is not persuasion and the goal of the conversation is greater understanding of another person's point of view and how and why they believe what they believe and feel what they feel, does that mean that you are walking around a lot less pissed off than the rest of us. Like, like, well, like, like I this feeling of like, how the hell can they believe that? You know, it, yeah. it strikes me that maybe you're feeling that less than some other people are feeling that. Yeah. And I've, I've thought about this as, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Because I, I do believe it's a good thing, mm-hmm. but sometimes I wonder if it's a bad thing in, in one respect, which is that you have to be angry to make change. In some ways, you have to be agitated. You have to be mobilized. I've thought about that a lot, even before times were so polarized, that I know that part of what's drawn me to journalism is this, I always want to know more. I always want to understand more. I always want to broaden, like open my aperture, right? But as somebody told me the other day, that analogy of opening the aperture from photography also means that you get less depth. People over history have created change based on agitation and anger. How am I okay when I am when I am actually trying in a way to, to yeah, to always ask what am I missing? Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've come down to is this. I think a healthy society has lots of different roles in good proportion. So we have the fighters and the activists who are just not that interested in getting all the nuances of white people. They just know that this is right and they are going to fight like hell for it. But those people need to be balanced out by a lot of people who are able to sit in their community of belief and reach a handout to somebody else in trust and say, oh, tell me about what you're thinking. Well, I'm thinking this. Well, let's chat. I think that what is wrong right now is far too few opportunities for that. 
One of the things that I found counterintuitive, I have always believed, right, that a, a very good discussion with somebody where you don't agree about things, well, you should be very rational and you should try to be fact-based. And you know what? Facts are facts. And my feelings and your feelings are valid, but they're not factual. And so, you know, we should stick to that. That's what a healthy discussion looks like rather than getting really upset and yelling at each other. Mm-hmm. But instead, you've said that discussions that include or even emphasize personal stories mm-hmm. are what to go for in these kinds of conversations. Can you say a bit more about that, about why personal stories and experiences um, are not in opposition with fact-based discussion? Right, right. You know, it comes back to that quote you read earlier about people's perspectives being very important to understand. So what we need right now is more trust building. Mm-hmm. We've got facts, uh, too many facts. We, what, we need is tr- what we need is trust. We don't have enough trust. Right. Um, so, so to build trust, it turns out, and I'm going to borrow from my friend um, Buster Benson, who wrote a book called Why Are We Yelling? He talks about how there's three types of conversations um, about disagreement. You can have uh, one that is asking what is true. You can have one that is asking what is meaningful and one that is asking what is useful. And so I think that the kind of conversation that builds trust is not the one that asks what is true. It is the one that asks what is meaningful. When it comes to what is meaningful for you and what is meaningful for me, that's at the root of how we see things differently. And in order to focus on what is meaningful, we have to know the stories. Right. We have to know the personal stories. It's not just, I am pro-choice because of these several rational reasons. We can throw statistics at each other all day long but that doesn't get to the passion and the fire behind why some people think abortion has to be allowed in a lot of situations. And so many other people think that it is a harmful thing and it cannot be allowed. It's about what's meaningful for us. One of the challenges to having these conversations is actually being in contact with people in order to have these conversations. So can you talk a bit about what you call SOS, um, sorting, othering, and siloing. There are a lot of forces at play that push us away from being curious about each other. Can you talk a little bit about those hurdles? Yeah, uh, they're big and getting bigger. So uh, the SOS is the call for help. Uh, Sorting, the first one, is about our very natural human tendency to want to be around people who are like us. In Mm -hmm. times of fear and stress and anxiety, we know that We want to be even closer to people who are similar to us, who will not make us uncomfortable. Why would we add that stress to an already stressful time? The O is othering, and that's the natural human tendency to put distance between ourselves and those we deem different. Some really chilling social research has shown that the difference doesn't even have to be that significant or meaningful for us to discriminate in, in even small ways against people we deem too different. But it has led historically to some grievous sins uh, against humanity. And then siloing is basically the result of the first two, sorting and othering, this distancing from those who are different, this glomming on to those who are similar. It's the stories we tell ourselves as a result. So, you know, we hang out with people who share our opinions. Our opinions become more extreme. We push off from those who are different. We begin to over-vilify and exaggerate and misperceive the reality of what those other people believe and who those other people are. These three things added up, the SOS, that I think leads to the underlying confounded brokenness that we're dealing with today. 
there were two things that really struck me in your discussion about sorting, othering, and siloing. One was straight up factual, and the other one was about misperception. You gave the example of counties that voted in landslide numbers in one presidential election or another. So these are counties that voted 20% higher than, I guess, the average in that particular election for one candidate or another. And that um, in 1980, there were 300 and something counties that did this. In 2000, there were 700 and something that did this. And in 2020, there were 1,700 counties that did this. In terms of numbers of people, even if you forget about the counties, in 1980, 4% of Americans lived in a landslide county. And in 2020, 35% of us lived in a landslide okay. county. So 35% of us are living in a very siloed way. Okay. That blew my mind. Isn't that wild? The other thing that I would love you to say more about is how wrong our perceptions are of each other. Mm. I feel so certain about my perceptions. I really trust my, my, you know, my judgment. And, um, but apparently I shouldn't trust my judgment as much as I think I should. No, no. And this is where journalism and the media, I think, you know, we have to take uh, the hit here because for as much as, you know, journalists have been trying, working really hard to make sure that everyone's got the facts right. We are getting a failing grade on getting the facts about other people's beliefs. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just, it's just ridiculous that this is acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> um, how can we pretend to be informed when we are not informed about people is, is what it comes down to me. So, so yes, without having the numbers right in front of me, the gap, um, there's a study of a famous one called the perception gap study, but there's many that have done similar things that will ask people on one side of an issue, what do you think the people on the other side believe? And we so often by like 20, 30 percentage points believe that the beliefs on the other side are far more extreme than they actually are. And this is happening on both the red blue binary. Obviously that doesn't explain the whole political spectrum, but that's a big you know shortcut to it. So it's pretty chilling. The other one that really um, struck me was that you ask people on one side how the other side feels about them. Mm -hmm. And both sides think that the other side despises them twice as much as they actually do. So again, it's not just the misperceptions, it's the animosity. Because what will justify me in hating them is believing that they hated me first. That's really underneath all of this. Uh, and in a lot of ways concerns me more. I always worry about um, situations where we have to go against human nature. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if that's built into us, that's a harder mountain to climb. It is, it is. But here's where I get a lot of hope, right? And this okay. goes back to where we began on conversation and the power of conversation. So I do this uh, workshop that helps people practice curiosity. And in one of the exercises, I have people pair off and ask, take turns asking each other questions about themselves. But the rule is that they cannot interrupt when the person gives an answer. And without fail, when we do the review of that exercise, and I ask what was hard about that, someone will say, I really wanted to interrupt to tell them that I also studied that in college or that I also grew up there or that whatever. 
So what you're saying about is human nature in all these ways to come apart and to misperceive, it is also human nature to connect. We have this extraordinary craving. I mean, it happens all the time, right? You meet someone in conversation and all you want to do is find what you have in common. That's all you want to do. It is a most beautiful instinct. So that is there too. Oh, that's a beautiful, beautiful note. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like to talk about? I I like to sort of, um, I guess... I always scan at the end of these conversations going, oh my gosh, did I make this point? And I didn't make this point. So let me make it, which is that it can feel like such a burden to, to go from zero to 60. Oh my gosh. Now I have to understand, you know, this person who did something completely egregious, like horrible to me. And the thing is that, that steps toward curiosity can be very, very small, including, I think one of the smallest is because every dialogue, every conversation is two dialogues, the dialogue with the other person and the dialogue with yourself, you can also work in a far kind of safer way, if that worries you, to just just make more curious the dialogue with yourself. So hmm. you're not ready to talk to somebody different? Great. Go online, because the internet actually is a goldmine of understanding if we know how to look at it differently. Go online, look at a, an article that conveys an opinion that you do not agree with, but that you know is a popular opinion on the other side. Read that article and ask yourself the question, what deep down honest concern is trying to speak here? Mm -hmm. What deep down honest human concern can I see here? And if you read that article with that question, instead of what might be your default, oh God, this is terrible, this is horrible, what a terrible person, you'll discover something new and get into the practice of doing that and you'll already be a little bit closer to maybe being able to have a conversation with someone else, but it doesn't matter. You'll already have grown more curious. That's enough. Monica shared a framework in the book that I have found incredibly helpful when I try to understand how someone else could have an opinion I find abhorrent. It was developed in the 1990s by an Israeli social psychologist named Shalom Schwartz, and it's called the Schwartz Theory of Basic Human Values. So Schwartz determined that there aren't an infinite number of human values out there. In fact, he says there are just 10. They're power, achievement, security, benevolence, tradition, conformity, universalism, self-direction, stimulation, and hedonism. And essentially, we all have the same values. We just have them in different proportions. And the mistake, Monica says, that many people make is assuming that someone who believes something you object to has no values instead of a different ordering of values. Yeah, I find this really interesting and useful. Monica explains how this could apply to political beliefs. It's not that someone is lacking in decency or has no sense of empathy. It's that someone scores high on security, for example, and therefore they want strong borders. Or maybe they score high on benevolence and conformity, and so they want to put the needs of documented citizens before those of undocumented people. On the other hand, someone who scores high on universalism might want a more open immigration policy. And if they score high on self-direction, they'd want undocumented immigrants to be able to pursue citizenship. Monica suggests that if you're talking to somebody about a contentious issue and you have different opinions, ask them about their concerns. So, you know, what worries you about X or what are you afraid might happen with Y? She says that when people tell you their concerns, they'll show you what they value. I just want to share a quick story before we go. About three days after I talked with Monica, I met a friend for coffee. And the very first thing she said to me was, I have to tell you about this incredible book I just read. It's so important. Everybody needs to read it. 
And of course, it was Monica's book. Yeah, I agree. It is an important book and one that can help with a critical problem that underlies a host of other problems that we're all facing right now. So everybody go and read it right away. Yes. And I think that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Monica on Twitter at Moni, M-O-N-I, Guzman. You can also watch her TEDx talk, How Curiosity Will Save Us. We've got a link to it in our show notes. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.